Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridgeline from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. the Ant Hill. Today is August the 12th, 2011. It's a Friday in episode 723. And you know what Friday means? Friday means it's your show. These are all calls that came into the Think line. That number is 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. You match those numbers on your phone. You'll get a little voicemail on the other end, and you leave your message, and uh, I'll try to get you on the phone. We do have a big backlog. It used to be if you called in, you were almost guaranteed to get on. Now I would say about... I'd say about 70% of the calls make it through. I want to send out a little public service announcement to the community today. Uh, I often say things like if you call from a weed, you know, while you're running a weed eater or a chainsaw with windows down your vehicle, uh, and it's a joke, but it's not completely a joke because I got a lot of crappy calls today, calls that I couldn't understand, calls that I couldn't put on the air, calls that I could kind of hear the question in, but you know what? I couldn't use them. I just couldn't put them on the air. They would drive the listeners nuts. When you make a phone call to the Think Line, please find a quiet location. If you're using a cell phone, make sure you have a good cellular signal. Remember, there is no one on the other end of the line to tell you, I can't understand what you're saying. So it is up to you to make sure you have a good, quiet location when you make your call. Speak loud, as loud as you can. So loud that somebody next to you goes, dude, why are you so loud? That's how loud you should talk. That will help make sure we get a good, clear, clean call and I can get you on the air. Before I go to your calls. Let's go ahead take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Marjorie down there somewhere south of Austin. That's as specific as we are with her location with BackyardFoodProduction.com and her DVD, Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm. If you do not have the DVD, I have a question for you. Why? Why would you not have such an awesome DVD packed with so much information? With her DVD comes a second little CD-ROM you can put in your computer. The document collection that's on there is worth the cost of the whole damn thing, and that's a bonus that comes with it. If you want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, this is one DVD you have absolutely got to have. The work they're doing down there is phenomenal. They were a sponsor before I brought them back. I made a special exception to bring them back. That tells you how... Uh, how highly I value the information they have and how fortunate I feel to have them as a sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants with Frank Sharp Jr. Frank's an awesome guy. He's been on the show a couple times. I have him scheduled to be uh, on the show again right before the Memorial Day break, so we'll try to get him on for that. That should be cool. Um, but I'll tell you what, people ask me all the time, Jack, what about this gun? Jack, what about that gun? Jack, what about this gun? I'm like, have you ever taken any firearms training? Have you had any training on how to properly use your firearm when you're under stress? 
Have you ever had somebody scream in your ear, they're, reload, 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 while you're trying to reload? Have you ever actually gone through an in-depth firearms training course? And generally the answer is, well, no. Okay, well, then I think before you buy another gun, assuming you have some guns and have some ammo, maybe you should consider a firearms training course. Uh, the skill set is more important than the gun. I would put it again another way. The operator is more important than the weapon. And you need to make sure that your operator, that is you, is as finely tuned as the weapon itself. So make sure you take a good firearms defensive training course at some point in the future. I can't think of a better place to do that than Fortress Defense Consultants. So remember the way Frank works. He's up there in Illinois, and I know some of you go, man, I can't get to Illinois for a training. Well, get a group of guys together, and they will come to you and do a training for you. If you have like a homestead group or a, a you know a, a retreat group or something like that, and you want someone to come out and not just give you training, but go over your defensive positions and stuff like with that like like that with you, they'll go that far if that's what you want. Get in touch with them today. Again, FortressDefenseConsultants.com, run by the the infamous Frank Sharp Jr. Next up today, remember, connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, best ways to do that along with our forum. You can find all of that at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Uh, also remember, check out our gear shop. We have some new cool stuff there. Uh, and that's uh, you can find that by going again to thesurvivalpodcast.com and clicking on the gear shop. Uh, next up, remember, you can support the show, and you do that at 20 cents an episode, and it comes out to 50 bucks a year. That's called the Members Support Brigade. And if you join the Members Support Brigade, you're not just supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. You get a gr bunch of great benefits, discounts to over 29 vendors now. Uh, you also get some videos by me that are available nowhere else, and you get over $100 worth of free ebooks on day one. If you're law enforcement, uh, military, Uh, or prior service or active duty Peace Corps, any of those things, if you've served or are serving, email me first, and I will give you a discount code just for the National Service members, and uh, that will give you a really great discount, better than anybody's ever gotten in a sale. I promise you that it does apply to recurring. With that, I'm ready to go ahead and take your calls today. I love doing shows like this. I know some of you guys are not. I hear once in a while from people, I don't like the listener feedback shows. Uh, I love the listener feedback shows because without the community, the show is nothing. It's just me rambling on. If no one was listening, it wouldn't matter. And this is the day the folks that are generally listening get to talk back. So let's go ahead and take that first call today. This is Nathan. Um, I had a question about the squash bugs. It's my... Uh biggest problem bug um, my squash plants they they suffer from real bad where i live and uh, my chickens take care of everything all the insects except for the squash bugs they won't touch them and um, the only time i ever saw a chicken eat one it looked like it ate a hot pepper and it uh closed its eyes and kind of made some strange sounds i can't uh can't duplicate and uh that didn't mess with them again i was just wondering if there's any other birds, any ducks or uh, turkeys or any other uh, kind of fowl that might uh, might eat these things, uh, make make it a lot easier on me. Uh, thank you. I appreciate your show. Um, squash bugs are a problem for a lot of folks. Um, at least they're not vine borers. You have a much bigger problem when you're dealing with vine borers because they're inside the vine and they're hard to get to. Um, squash bug control, I'll tell you, the best thing you can really use for that is just a decent insecticidal soap. Uh, it's organic, it's okay, it's safe, it won't harm you, it can be harmful to beneficials. The beauty of the squash bug is that it's slow and stupid, 
And um, if you just go out to your squash plants, you'll, you'll see the little nymphs of the baby ones and the big ones on the plants uh, as they start to become a problem. And if you just spray them directly uh, every other day or so, you'll get a pretty decent control of them. And uh, just spray only where you see them. Another thing you can do is get some tape. Now, this is better than trying to rub them off because often you damage the leaves. And if you look at the underside of the leaves of your squash plants, you'll see little clumps of red leaves when the squash bugs are active. And if you take that tape and just touch the tape to the eggs, it just comes right off and it does no damage to your leaves. You can then throw those away. It's for animals that will eat them. I know one creature that eats squash bugs that I'm absolutely sure eats squash bugs, and that's guinea hens. The problem is if you let guinea hens into your squash, they'll eat your squash. Uh, I've also read on a forum that somebody noticed that they only tend to eat the squash bugs when the uh, when they move, which is you know seldom for squash bugs. They pretty much just sit there sucking the juices out of the leaves all day long of the squash plant. That's the the real damage they do. They're not really that big of a problem for the squash itself. We have more issues with the stink bugs, you know, dimpling and making the squash look bad, and they really don't hurt it. Uh, it, it's more the squash bugs, you know, M.O. to suck leaves. There's some other things you can do. Uh, you can plant a trap crop. A trap crop is a crop that you don't care if the squash bugs infest it and bother it. And a great trap crop, crop for uh, squash bugs would be uh, mammoth sunflower. Those huge mammoth sunflower leaves, they love to suck on those. And the sunflowers don't care. And they can be there. And then you can go over to your mammoth sunflower leaves and you can kill the little suckers with a little bit of spray if you want to do that. Or you can uh, just wait till they're all over one of the big leaves and then cut it off. And then if you had guineas, throw that leaf to your guineas and they'll tear it up uh, when they see the, the movement there. Or you can just cut it off, throw it in a bag, and toss it away. There's all kinds of ways to deal with it then. So I would use a combination of things. I would use a trap crop. Uh, you can bring some guineas in if you want to. Just understand that they will apparently eat your squashes. I've never kept guineas uh, around squash, so I don't know for a fact that's the case. But pretty much uh, in this form that I read, that's what people were saying, that they, they'll eat the bugs, but they'll also eat the squash. So you, you know, it's more along the lines of cutting a leaf off and tossing it to them for some control. Uh, but the best effect, I, the best use I found, or best way I've found to do this is uh, with some spray. And then another way you can do it is with hoop coverings. So if you use some floating row covers and uh, only remove those at the time that your squash are in flower, uh, you'll you'll uh, you'll cut down on them a great deal. But again, try some mammoth sunflower. Uh, that will give them something else to spend their time doing. And I noticed that when I was growing mammoth sunflowers uh, last year, and there were squash bugs all over the sunflowers, and the, the, they they just simply couldn't do anything to truly harm the sunflowers, too fast growing, too large, what have you. And then when you harvest your sunflower heads, just cut all those leaves off and throw them in a fire or throw them in a garbage, whatever. And then the beauty of that is you're, you're thinning the population year after year after year because they put all their reproductive activity into to using that plant as a colony base. And then all of them, the little nymphs that were supposed to repopulate and, and keep growing the population ended up in your burner or in your garbage can or what have you. So just some thoughts there. That's the best I can do for you on it. Overall, they're a, they're a problematic pest, but they're not as bad as some of the other things that are out there like tomato hornworms and squash vine borers and corn earworms. So uh, consider yourself blessed by a parasite that's a pest. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Rational Husker from the forum calling again. I butchered the last call about the property, so I wanted to try again and make it more concise. But I'm looking at a property, about 15 or 16 acres. All but about one and a half acres of that is very heavily timbered, 
um, and probably a substantial portion of that is flown prone to flooding from time to time, not every year, but I imagine every few years. I'm very comfortable with the part that's high and dry. I'm not worried about it as far as being a flood risk. But with that little amount of open space, I'm wondering what sorts of things I can do from a permaculture or agricultural standpoint with some of that lower-lying ground. Um, obviously, the hardwood has value in itself. The floor, uh, forest floor is full of nettles, but you can only eat so many nettles. Obviously, the hunting and the wildlife it offers is a benefit. But uh, am I missing some obvious things about what I might be able to grow or do with that forest flow area? Perhaps some temporary fencing would make it suitable for some types of livestock. Um, appreciate your thoughts on that, Jack. Thank you, and sorry about my earlier jumbled message. Well, there are some pretty obvious things you're overlooking. One, when, when an area floods, it's generally because it's a low-lying area and it receives more water than it can handle. And that spells opportunity for pond building. You see, if you create a very large volume area by using depth where the water can accumulate into a pond, then the water has somewhere to go and you get less flooding to begin with and you have a pond that often stays very full for you. And being a wetland area, you're probably going to have a lot of clay and humus and things like that in your soil. So you'll probably be able to create a, a pond or three or four with that kind of area down in that area by clearing out some timber and building some ponds. And then the dirt that comes out of those ponds can be used maybe to build up some of the, the bordering areas that flood a little bit and make them flood a little bit less and make them a little bit more uh, suitable for conventional planting. So that would just be one thing that you could do. Uh, you could also maybe uh, create some sales, swales and level sills that would help move the water from one point to another, so wherever it's, it floods the worst to a place where it floods the least. And those two things alone would probably take and just make better use of the water. Rather than being a standing flood, it would be standing ponds and, and, and movement with swales and swell ditches and, and sills. So that would be one approach you could take. The other approach you could take is you could just do some clearing, create some openings, and plant some trees and, and things that produce food for you in those areas that like wet areas, that like to grow there. Um, but I think ponds would be the best way to go. With ponds, you could start growing things like taro and, and, and all types of and fish and practice aquaculture. And I mean, just a couple little ponds down there, a couple ponds, let's say, of a half acre size, uh, could grow, you know, several, you could actually manage them separately with different fish species and forage groups and things like that. If you have warm enough weather to get a crop of tilapia through before it gets too cold for them, you could basically dedicate one pond to nothing but tilapia, and you wouldn't even have to net them or fish them out. When they, you know, Just monitor your weather and when, monitor your water temperature, and the day that the water gets down to what they can't handle, take a little boat and a net and go scoop them up as they float. And it, it literally is that easy. There's a, Actually, I've read of a lake or two in Arkansas that they're using tilapia as a forage fish for the bass, and uh, people tend to do that. They go out there once the water gets too cold and just net them up. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I don't remember if I read that in a blog or an actual news publication. But it makes perfect sense. There would be nothing wrong with the fish at that point. Uh, so those are some things that I immediately snap to. And then, you know, just if it's a flooded area, some of the things, maybe you could grow some rice. If you cleared out a small patch, and I think you'd be surprised at what, like, you know, I don't know, even a 20th of an acre of a little rice field could do for you. 
Um, there, there's just so much you can do with that. Don't clear it all, though. You know, if you even if you do ponds, you know, build a, a path in or a road in with your equipment, uh, a path to move the dirt around to where you want it. Clear the area for the pond and leave it wooded largely. Maybe create some breaks along the shorelines for it. Uh, but that'll do so much more for you than just trying to throw some trees in there. But there are some good understory trees you can grow, especially at your edges, that are going to do fine, even with a little bit of flooding. Pawpaw is going to do great there for you. Currants will do great for you. Muscadine grape will do great for you. Just integrate it into the forest itself. So there's a lot of opportunity there. The thing is to be creative and to think about, and the big thing is to break it down into components, right? I mean, there's a lot of things I want to do with my land. I've got a buddy coming up with a piece of heavy equipment next weekend to do, you know, kind of phase one. We're not going to try to do the whole property right off, you know, so break it into phases, uh, set some priorities. But I mean, the number one thing I can, I can think of there is open up, you know, open up a quarter or a half an acre. Uh, use that, that is probably great soil for it for as far as compaction of soil down there. Take out those trees in that area. Find the best area that makes sense for utilization and put some ponds in there and start practicing some aquaculture. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Adam Pachanta in Cascadia. You have a lot of listeners up here, and we all appreciate the work that you're doing. And also that you don't need to apologize for a spot-on rant about the Julie Bass family's front yard garden. I especially liked when you pointed out that the city of Oak Park might need those vegetables after their city government collapses. How true. Just to be as ridiculous as Oak Park code, I thought of a loophole about unpaved areas needing to be covered with suitable ground cover. So someone could pave the whole front yard then build giant planter boxes on top of the pavement to get around the city code. This crap does deserve massive protest by anyone who still believes this is a free country. The city hall's phone number is 248 691-7400. Again, this is Anna Pashanta in the Pacific Northwest, Cascadia. Thanks again, Jack. Well, that call comes from about three weeks back. That's about where I'm working at right now. Um, and, of course, the city of Oak Park, Michigan, uh, under undue duress from people all over the country dropped the charges against Julie Bass for having a front yard garden. Apparently even dropped the charges against their dogs. They had a charge against their dogs because their dogs were not licensed. Of course, the Basses, when they were told you have to have your dogs licensed, even if they're under your control at all times, went out and immediately got licenses, and they were still trying to prosecute them for this, which is just stupid. And nobody would ever do that except for the fact they were trying to make a point because these people were holding the line on this front yard garden. So that's ha that's already gone away. If you want to use that number, call City Hall and tell them you still think they're a bunch of ass clowns, go ahead. It just really doesn't matter at this point uh, in Oak Park. The reason I played that is because this is going on all over America where people are trying to change the way they do things. You know, your city government, uh, your county government, your state government will constantly bombard you with bullshit about watering. Oh, you know, we're going to have water rationing and don't use too much water and don't be wasteful and plant native species and on and on and on. They go conserve resources and they lecture to you like you're two freaking years old, like you don't understand that water is a finite resource. And then a, a family will go and do something like put in a front yard vegetable garden and they'll say, oh, don't do that. Okay, so they stop feeding useless grass and start feeding useful, productive plants 
and, and then they have a problem with it. This is the kind of asininity that's going on out there. there. There's two enemies of the front yard vegetable garden. Stupid, idiotic members of government at all levels and moronic, idiotic members of homeowners associations. Both should be fought at every single opportunity. What I want people to realize here is whenever this happens... Anywhere. The outrage needs to be the same as it was in Oak Park. We need to have city, county, governments, homeowners associations, all these people afraid. If they do something stupid like this, they're going to be in a national limelight, just like the Bass family was, for being stupid. And that there's going to be resistance, and it's something people will no longer tolerate. And it is one place to draw the line, and it's one place where most of us agree, regardless of our political affiliation, no matter who we are, only nitpicking, pain-in-the-ass jack-offs care about somebody growing a decent-looking garden in their front yard versus uh, a perfectly mowed, manicured grass lawn. And if you're the person that cares about that, I don't know why you're listening to my show, because my show's not for people of your mentality. It's really not. Um, It doesn't make sense to me at all. I find it to be completely asinine. And here I go on a rant again, but I won't apologize because I've been told I don't need to. Um, but I just want to make sure people stay vigilant with this particular issue because, to me, this is an issue where we can fight and win like every single time. There isn't a city government anywhere. There isn't a mayor anywhere. There isn't anybody out there right now that wants to be put under the microscope. YouTube videos, Facebook pages, bloggers, phones, lines melting down. Nobody wants to touch this. Let's keep it that way. And when there's other issues that are similar that we can fight that way, let's start realizing that Tip O'Neill's father was right when he said all politics are local. I think he said all politics is local, whichever way he put it. Um, and actually, I did a thing about that a long time ago. But here's what we need to start doing. When there's local oppression, we need to take local politics and turn them into something national. And there's a lot of things that members of this audience disagree about. Uh, there's a lot of political issues. There's, there's you know, left-leaning, right-leaning, libertarian-leaning, constitutional leanings uh, all over the place. And there's a lot of places where we all look at it and go, I don't agree with you. But I think in things like this, I bet there's a 90% or better consensus that this is bullshit. So when we find these 90% consensus issues and somebody's being oppressed, let's always step in. And let's not just use TSP, let's use other communities. I loved what happened. I actually think Oak Park was a good thing because it said to, I guarantee you, there's dozens if not hundreds of small local governments going, well, we better not do that now. Every time your voice, voice is heard like a roaring lion, uh, they go to being the sheep instead of us. Let's keep that up. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Carney Princess from the forum. Uh, say, I got a question for you. You, uh, you mentioned a couple of your, the episodes of your show that uh, you kind of get the feeling, I guess, that you're not uh, on board with sort of the Valesian form of uh, survivalism. And I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are on what he's termed to be the golden horde. Uh, the idea that uh, post shit hit the fan scenario, uh, you know, water goes out, power goes out, and then uh, the horde of people left the cities that decided to stay eventually need to move in order to get food, shelter, water, etc. Uh, I guess, what are your thoughts on that? And uh, maybe some examples for various uh, timelines based on the events, uh, local, national, regional, what have you. Uh, it'd be great. Thanks. Great show. Bye. I'm not familiar with the author that you're mentioning there or the leader or the blogger or whoever this 
You said Balesian, almost like the Bali, you know, is, is what I hear there. So I'm not sure who this guy is, but I've heard the theory over and over and over again until I'm like blue in the face from listening to it. Let me explain something. There are a lot of people in this industry, what they want to do is they want to sell you an idea, sell you a concept so they can sell you stuff. And to me, that doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. There's a lot of things out there that make sense to add to your homesteading, add to your preps, long-term storage food and all that. And there's a million reasons to do it. But when somebody's selling to you based on fear, generally they're selling to you based on the desire for, for money in their own pocket. So that's the first issue that I have with it. The second issue is let's just look at this logistically. I'm supposed to believe that in a post-shit-hit-the-fan world that there's going to be this massive mob of 5,000 people traveling in a horde and they're going to be going across the, the area raping the land as they go. Um, they got to get a lot of stuff along the way to survive. What you're actually describing quickly turns into a band of refugees who are ill-equipped, ill-armed, Ill, Ill, Ill everything, and are just begging their way along. If you want to see what happens when people end up in this, look over into, into Ethiopia right now, and you see these people traveling to these refugee camps. It doesn't logistically work. An army marches on its stomach. So if you're in a place where everything's scarce and only certain people have been prepared in any way, shape, or form to do it, and you put a group together that large and you start marching somewhere, the next thing you know you are is Napoleon coming back from Russia having more of your people killed from walking than in the engagement with the Russians. So, so that's the first part of that. Now, can groups get together, go out and do this crap? Yes, especially smaller groups instead of this, this massive imaginary zombie horde that these people have in their Hollywood minds. But I've said this before. When you look over to the Middle East right now and you see our soldiers and you get platoons and squads going out with armored vehicles, aerial support, um, long ch supply chains, massive amounts of, 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 uh, of support from behind, and they're getting torn apart by a bunch of mountain people uh, and a bunch of villagers uh, that are fighting this insurgent war. That doesn't mean they're not winning the war, but they're sure getting torn up. Now you're going to take that group of people and you're going to take away air support, you're going to take away military support, you're going to take away the supply chain, and you're going to send that people, those people out into this, this, you know, this uh, time when America has descended into kind of a lawless society. What do you think is going to happen to them? Do you think like a whole bunch of farmers are just going to sit around and go, oh, go ahead and take our tomatoes and our corn? Or do you think that the, the, you know, the shotguns are going to come out, the pitchforks, the clubs, the people are going to band together? We're going to talk more next week about what's going on in London with the riots right now. But here's what happened in London. These people got away with this shit for the first couple of days. The police didn't do enough. Then the police came in and did some things, but they're overwhelmed by it. So you know what's going on now. The store owners, the neighborhood people, they're getting together. They're picking up baseball bats. They're picking up uh, sticks. They're picking up anything. And they're saying, if you come here to do damage to us, we're going to do damage back to you. Now, America is a nation with 80 million gun owners. All right? So now, not all 80 million of them are going to grab their gun and go steal other people's stuff. No. Most of them are going to stand guard at their own place and with their own neighbors. So the isolationist, if there ever is this kind of... Uh, it, the horde is just stupid. It ain't going to happen. But these these subgroups, you know, a dozen, two dozen people uh, going out on force and force engagement type, trying to steal whatever anybody has, the isolationist is in the greatest danger. Now, it might be a little bit harder to find them, but once you find them, there's this hold-up area. And I don't care if mom, dad, and the little kids are armed. There's four or five people there, maybe maybe a dozen. And then you've got 24 people that don't care about anybody but themselves. There's a, That's an easy thing to lay siege to and slowly pick off. 
that same group goes into a community of people that are nowhere near as well trained or prepared, but they've just simply drawn a line in the sand, and you've got that small group coming into a, a collective community that's holding itself together, and they're going to get torn apart. All right, so this whole horde thing, get it out of your freaking head. First of all, there's way too much. The whole thing's just asinine, really, when you think about it. Um, can the whole country fall apart if we compare it to where it is now? Yes. But there is so much infrastructure, so much apparatus uh, in place to believe that it can go down and turn into Somalia. Is, is just ridiculous. And then even in Somalia, it's not the way these people imagine it. And I think that is important for us all to realize that we need to stick to fundamental basics and we prepare for disaster in the order of probability and along the way we get more and more prepared and we can deal with even bigger and bigger catastrophes. But I'm telling you right now, The greater the disaster, the greater the importance of community. The more isolated, the more individualistic you are, the more vulnerable you are, period. That doesn't mean that everybody should move into the cities and form an urban community. It also doesn't mean that people shouldn't do that. But it means wherever you are, know your neighbors, don't be an isolationist. And if you think that you're going to exist in this little island of bliss while everything explodes around you, you're just deluding yourself. I'm sorry, it's not going to work that way. Um, and people that say things like, you know, well, you'll be a target because you have a gardener. You'll be a target. If you get into that level of de de decay, you'll be a target because you exist. All right? So everybody's going to be a target anyway. So my view is the stronger the community, the better off we are. This is why I'm for civilian militias, uh, new chartered militias underneath county government the way that Oath, Oath Keepers is recommending that we do. Uh, this is why I'm for things like certs. This is why I'm for all of these methods of building community. If you want to be an isolationist, fine. I completely understand. Some people just like to live that way. But if you're doing it that way and you're miserable because you're convinced the end is coming soon, you are wasting your life. You are wasting your existence. I did not really understand the Belizean or whatever it was. If somebody wants to email me and give me some information on exactly what this guy's asking, I'll look deeper into it. But, but I, I don't know what Belizean survivalism is. And uh, I, I don't know that I'm really that interested, but but I would like to check it out if you know if I've got something wrong. I couldn't find anything based on my understanding of what was said here. Uh, but that's how I feel about this whole hordes thing. And uh, so, what do you do? You get prepared. You don't tell people I have two years worth of food. That is dumb. Uh, but you do spread a message of preparedness. And I think that the people that build stronger community are going to be best suited to handle any disaster. The big one I fear coming is an economic collapse, but it's not Patriots. It's not Rawls' version. And to be fair to Rawls, I don't think he thinks that's what's coming either. Uh, I think Rawls used that as an illustration of the worst of the worst. When you read his blog, you see much more of a spiraling down of the economy, uh, something akin to the Great Depression, maybe worse, but in that area and those of you that look at that and go well that's not that bad you don't know how bad it was do some studying on what the great depression was really like don't believe the tv when they tell you this is the worst thing that's ever happened since the great depression that doesn't mean it's anything like the great depression let's say that the the, the, the last time that there was a big uh a shooting spree uh 5,000 people were killed in it 
and that there's a shooting spree today where 10 people were killed. And if I say the last time was when this, you know, so-and-so massacre happened, the two have no correlation to each other other than this is the worst one since then. They, they don't really match up. Please understand that as well. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Jeff from St. Louis Lost Airplane. You told the story one time about prepping and that it has this psychological, uh, you know, it builds a, a goodwill inside of people, you know, that good feeling. In other words, someone can say, man, I can do without heat, I can do without sleep, I can do without light, I can do, but don't, but just bring me my coffee, I'm fine. Well, that's how my wife is with her coffee. So, of course, since we've been prepping and we put coffee in our preps, I no longer have to run down to Quick Trip and get her a cup of coffee when she runs out in the, on a Saturday morning or go to the store. I get to stay in my pajamas and walk downstairs, grab it out of the prep, bring it up, and I'm a hero. So prepping has been good to us in the kitchen on so many occasions with her cooking, baking, whatever. But last a couple weeks ago, we had a power outage. The kids were getting bored, you know, my two daughters. They're 8 and 23. Okay, I'll explain later. But, the, the, you know, they're, they're keeping busy reading, and the little one's drawing pictures. I sort of you know, talked to my wife, and we sort of surreptitiously snuck around, got the deep cycle battery and the inverter hooked up to the uh, desktop computer to it, and once it was all booted up and everything, I made the announcement that the desktop computer is now back in service, and the older daughter got to do her Facebook in and all her stuff that she wanted to do, and the little one got to play some Pokemon games, and they ended up watching a little TV show called iCarly together, sitting on the couch holding hands. It was like a Kodak moment, you know, and all due to prepping, having a deep cycle battery and an inverter. Save the day, turn an awful experience for them into a wonderful bonding little fun time. So they learned a couple things, that their parents loved them and that prepping is good. So anyway, it's all good, and it just keeps getting better. Talk to you later. Bye. And rule one of prepping. Right, if we do it the smart way, rule one of modern survivalist style prepping. Everything that we do to prepare for disasters in the future should make our life better, even if nothing ever goes wrong. Or maybe we should change that to even if nothing or just something real small goes wrong. Um, how can you put a price on the experience? How can you put a price on children learning a little bit about being responsible for themselves and being prepared for themselves and the difference that it can make. How can you put a price tag on a really younger sister and a really older sister there uh, having that time together and having to be together because there's only one source of entertainment because you're limited by the, the prepping resource that you've created. Uh, and, and what a great feeling of comfort that you know that things are going to be okay. Um, I don't have much else to say about that one. Great call. Thanks for it. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Ed up here at Fort Lewis. Just uh, wondering what your outlook is on military employment. And obviously the federal government's looking to cut and everything, but um, just looking at all the options available and um, what you see as far as the job market in, in that area going. Thanks a bunch. Well, you didn't really say what you mean by military employment. Do you mean civilian military employment, like working for the Department of Defense or working as a contractor for a defense contractor like Lockheed or or uh, Loral or somebody like that, or, or you know uh, Brown and Root uh, in a defense industry uh, response situation, or do you mean working as a soldier, an airman, a marine, you know, uh, or, or a, a naval person? Uh, what do you mean by that? Let's say if, if you mean by the enlisted or officer side of things, I'll tell you this: um, you're going to get paid, you're going to get your food, no matter what they say. 
Uh, they might change military retirements, and I believe that if they do, they will have to grandfather the existing military personnel. I don't think they can go back and renege on what they've already promised them. They may do it through a prorated status. What they're talking about is basically taking our military personnel and moving them to a mandatory 401k-style retirement plan where they have to fund their own retirement, and they're eligible at you know 60 or 59 or something like that versus 20 out and, and a 50% of pay for the rest of their life uh, retirement. Um, we can talk whether that's good or bad, but that's what they're talking about doing. But I think the people that are already in, they're not going to be able to do that because there's a contract at enlistment, and I think it would be something people would blow a gasket over. But that said, if you're thinking about going in and joining the military for a career, it's not about money, and if it is, do not do it because you are not going to be happy. Uh, if it's not a calling, if it's not something you're willing to spend your life Uh, 20 years of your life for, for a full uh, retirement doing as a mission first and monetary second, you are going to be a very unhappy uh, person in the military because they're going to ask a lot of you. If you're going to do it and you're thinking the career route, I would get at least two years of college, even through community college under my belt, and I would get myself into, into OCS, Officers Candidate School, and I would, I would get in there as a lieutenant and I would take the officer's path. I think that for a career person in the military, the money is extremely uh, better than the money for an enlisted person. The perks, everything about being in the military, if you're going to be in there for a long period of time, is better as an officer. Uh, I don't care if you're in the infantry. I think that you're better off as an officer uh, from a standpoint of pay, from a standpoint of benefit, from a standpoint of opportunity. Um, I'm not putting enlisted personnel down. I was an enlisted person myself, and had I stayed in, I would have probably remained enlisted. Um, but I'm telling you, I think that's one place where it makes sense to put a little bit of college behind you, definitely. And I think you'll get more out of it. If you're talking about working for the defense industry in any capacity, in spite of all the promises of cuts, and they probably will do some defense department cutting, it will be the last place that they cut at any severe level. Um, and I think there's plenty of room for cuts. I want you to understand that. I, well, supporting my troops doesn't mean that I don't think we don't spend and waste money on the Department of Defense because we do. It's one of our one of our you know five biggest uh, single departmental expenses in the nation. We spend more uh, than if you take the other top. 10 uh, nations military spending and combine it, we spend more than that. Uh, we outspend pretty much the rest of the world uh, on military defense. So we know there's room in there. Uh, so if you're doing, if you're going to get a job and you're going to be working on maybe some type of a high-end nuclear submarine, some of those types of programs may be scrapped. How many of them do we really need, Joseph Lieberman, um, you know, to fight people in caves, if that's what we're really doing, that type of thing. But um, I think that there's tremendous opportunity in that space Uh, the pay is fairly good. The benefits are fairly good. Will things get cut? Yes. But if things are cut there, they're going to be cut as much or more anywhere else you go. Uh, but as a straight-up thing about enlistment or even serving as an officer, you're never going to be a rich soldier. You're never going to be a rich Marine. I don't care if you become a general. You're not going to really be a wealthy person uh, by serving in the military. It's not what you go there for. So if financial gain is important to you and there's nothing wrong with that, I would seek other opportunities. If it's a calling, join for the shortest term you can with the most reasonable expectation of it actually meaning something when you uh, finish your term that you'll be able to get out so that if you end up in there for 20 or more, it is by choice. Um, one of the best things that my recruiter did for me 
was put me into a short program, a three-year program. Um, I don't think I was cut out to do five years or six years or eight years like many of the enlistment programs were in the military. And I don't think I'd have the life I do today had I stayed that long. I'm grateful for my time that I served, but I'm grateful that it was short. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's uh, Andrew W. in Oklahoma, Irish AJW on the forums. And I just had a quick question for you. I uh, recently bought 10 acres of land in the Ozark Mountains of eastern Oklahoma, and it's very hilly. It's very wooded, trees everywhere. <clears throat> it's mostly churdy, plenty-type soil. Anyway, when the weather gets cool, I want to try to clear the land. Right now it's a tick preserve and conservatory, and I've never tried to clear 10 acres of land before, and I'm wondering if you have any useful tips on how I could go about doing that uh, efficiently and economically. Appreciate it. Love the show. Thanks. Bye. All right. Well, suggestion one, you have 10 acres of land. Do not clear 10 acres. Okay. Um, I, I think, first of all, that you will be shocked at how much land you'll have to work with if you clear an acre or two and try to convert it into something more usable. And I like the way this kind of dovetails into the other call that we had earlier about timberland and, and, and flooded areas. Uh, there's a lot you can do with land like this. It's very similar to the land that I have. We have five acres. Uh, not only would my wife kill me if I tried to clear all five acres of our land, but uh, I, I just wouldn't do it. It's, uh, it. It just doesn't make sense to have uh, all those trees holding what soil there is in place and to remove them. So look for some selective areas. The next thing I'm going to tell you is when it comes to, now if you're talking about clearing out undergrowth and stuff like that, it's tough. And I mean, it's a long-term process and a lot of it's going to grow back as you grow, as you go. So sector off areas and that stuff you have to do manually with like chainsaws and stuff like that and, and, and loppers and, and other tools. But if you actually mean remove trees and actually create some open areas, hire somebody with a piece of heavy equipment. It is not that expensive. Uh, and it will provide an abundance of material for you. And if, let's say, you want to turn some of it into some agricultural areas, you take your trees out. There's your material for your hugel beds uh, to do hugel culture. Then you can maybe do some swaling and get some of this soil because it sucks, right? The soil sucks because it's so steep. If you put in some swales along some of your contour lines, you can start to push the water through the soil, and maybe you can make some organic matter swales. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do. But the big thing I want to point out, and I think a lot of people look at heavy equipment and they go, it's too expensive. It's not that expensive to hire a guy with a backhoe or a dozer for a day or two. Um, even if you looked at 50 bucks an hour, which is a pretty standard equipment operator rate, uh, an eight-hour day is 400 bucks. Two eight-hour days is $800. You would be floored to what a large piece of equipment can do in 16 hours. It would take you years to do the same amount of work. So we don't need to be afraid to use heavy equipment. But the big thing is, please, no one out there, no one out there buy 10 acres of land and clear the whole thing. It, 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 will, it defies every bit of reason and logic. Now, you talk about ticks and issues like that. Get some guinea hens. Set them free range in there. They'll eat ticks until, they're, until they explode damn near. Um, it's a great method of tick control. And I understand the need to clear out some of the underbrush and things like that. But always try to take at least 10% of your land and leave it completely alone. And I would say that if you look at the sector analysis with zoning, with permaculture, 
If you look at Zone 1 and then you say, well, how big is Zone 2? Now, this varies based on terrain and issues and things like that. But generally, Zone 2 in a permaculture system where there's enough land to work with and 10 acres is enough to work with, Zone 2 is going to be about twice the size of Zone 1. Zone 3 will be much larger than Zone 2. 4 will be much larger than 3. And 5 will be larger probably than 1 through 4 put together. So on a 10-acre system, you may only be using 4 acres if you're doing true permaculture. That may not be your goal, and that's okay. But if you are, you may only be using 40% of the land uh, in the Zone 1 through 4 philosophy and le using 60% of it and leaving it in kind of a wilderness state. That's going to do so many things for you. And again, I don't think most people comprehend how much land an acre or two to actually work with really is. And I would say it to you this way. Let's say you go out there and you clear out yourself. You find the best land to work with, the most flat, uh, easiest to control, easiest to contour components of your land. And you clear out yourself an acre or an acre and a half, and you start working that piece. If you get done with it, and there's nothing else you can do, and it doesn't do everything you want, it's real easy to bring the guy back in for a day, another 400 bucks, and clear out another acre or a half acre. If you clear it, putting it back to the way it was will take your lifetime to do. So work it slowly over time, only taking the best for the intended purpose as you clear land. And I think you'll find if you do that, you'll, you'll get a lot of enjoyment out of your land. Now do think about this. Get that guy to go put a couple trails in through your land so you can access it. But don't wipe it flat. That will cause undue harm to the land and that little bit of soil that you do have working for you within a year it'll be gone and you'll be trying to rebuild it all right let's go ahead and take another call hi jack randy from houston again um got another question for you uh this is regarding home defense and uh was wondering what your take would be on um using shot shell for uh for handguns i've never used it before but um i know uh, i know shotguns are uh the best uh, best choice for home defense, but just thinking that um, a handgun in a bedroom and a small safe would be quicker to get to than uh, keeping uh, shotguns around, um, especially if a safe's not sitting there in your bedroom. But uh, anyway, wondering what your take was on using shot shell in your handguns for uh, for home defense if uh, if you prefer not to use a big shotgun. But um, anyway, I'll sit back and. Uh, Look forward to uh, hearing what you've got to say, and as always, thanks so much for the great job you do. Bye-bye. There's two ways you can mean that. One is you can mean that in a purpose-built uh, self-defense tool, like the Taurus Judge that's designed to hold 410 shot shell, which can maybe be loaded up with... Uh, with some uh, three-pellet three buck uh, stuff. And uh, if that's the case, at reasonable ranges inside of a home, let's say seven yards or less, is a pretty intimidating and pretty effective weapon. Uh, it's still not uh, what I would particularly want to do. I see that more as like a defense weapon for someone that spends a lot of time in a vehicle and might be assaulted at that kind of range. Uh, it is still a relatively short short-range weapon, even for a home defense situation. I would much prefer a short-barreled shotgun. I don't know uh, why you feel that it would be harder to, uh, to store that. Maybe just that it's harder to store safe because you have kids in the house. Uh, that's understandable, but uh, if you don't have that concern, you know, a 20-inch youth model, 20-gauge uh, Remington 870, uh, the Express model sells for about 200 bucks. Load it up with uh, some buckshot and remove the plug and, and put that underneath a mattress and you'll never know it's there uh, until you need it. Now, if you have safety considerations, there's, there's other things there. 
the other way you can mean this is like you know you can go buy shot shells for 44 magnum or shot shells for 38 special. Uh, at best, I would call that non-lethal self-defense. Uh, at like very close ranges, it certainly could be lethal, uh, but I would not rely on it for anything other than maybe blinding an attacker. It's completely, totally useless as a self-defense round. I'm assuming that's not what you mean. You're thinking of a purpose-built tool like the Taurus Judge. If so, uh, I would say become very familiar with its range limits and capabilities. Do a lot of shooting and patterning with it. I can only say so much because I've never fired one. I've only ever held one once or twice at gun shows, so I'm not real familiar with the weapon. I know that just based on my knowledge of the 410 shot shell, that it, you know, if somebody was trying to jack you out of your car and you planted one in their chest from a couple feet away, it's going to give them a real bad day and maybe their last real bad day real quick. Um, but so, if anybody knows of some really good solid. Ballistics uh, studies that have been done uh, using the judge or anything similar. I'd love to look at them, uh, and, and not just patterning it, but but like uh, penetration tests or something like that. I think it's a good solid weapon, and if that's what you're talking about, I, I couldn't fault anyone for buying one or keeping one in a nightstand or something like that. I, I just don't think it will ever really be to the level of a uh, of a good shotgun. In fact, I would say in a home defense situation, I'd rather have my 1911 than a Taurus Judge. Um, I, I, you know, there, you're not talking about extreme ranges, but uh, ranges where uh, you can definitely make sure you're putting your rounds where you want them to go with something like uh, a 1911 or a Glock or anything like that. I, I would take a good quality handgun, uh, firing good self-defense rounds over a Taurus Judge at those types of ranges in most instances. And that's just my personal opinion. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Thanks for the show. I uh, appreciate everything you do day in, day out. Uh, really impacted my life for the positive and uh, giving me a different perspective on life. I've got a, a fugal culture question for you. Getting ready to start a bed. I'm trying to figure out. I've, I've, I've got free access to uh, some horse manure. Um, I was thinking I would set up for the fugal culture bed. I would set my wood, the horse manure on top, and then a layer of topsoil. But I'm trying to figure out the layer, how thick of the layer of topsoil do I need between uh, the wood and, and where eventually I'll, I'll plant my plants. Um, thinking maybe six, maybe eight inches. Should it be deeper? Would too much soil be bad? Wouldn't really get the effect. If you could just give me some feedback on it, I'd appreciate it. Look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Bye. Well, um, you're thinking more like a foot is what you need to be doing there. And let's start out with just a basic understanding of what, what's going on with Google culture. It's not just that all that wood and organic matter is sitting down there holding the moisture and the roots are going straight there and getting it. Your soil that's above it, your humus and your topsoil and, and, and all that good, your compost is all acting like a wick. Just like in a self-watering container, uh, the whole bucket doesn't sit in the water. The bucket actually sits above the water. Container sits above the water. And maybe only a couple inches of soil in a, in a container is allowed to go down into the reservoir. And then that soil sucks that up like a wick action and brings it up to the plants. Conversely, because you're doing that, The water's not right at the surface, it's down a little bit. So the plants, 
uh, use innate intelligence to know I gotta go deeper, I gotta go further down, and they put down huge deep root systems. So Google culture doesn't just work because it retains moisture, it works because it builds stronger roots within the plant's system itself. And that's why, you know, if you ask Paul Wheaton, he'll tell you if you have any opportunity whatsoever, plant from seed versus from transplant because you'll get better tap roots and more healthy root systems in a hugelkultur system if you can plant from seed. Now, some people live in places where you just can't pull that off, uh, but you'd be surprised at how many areas you actually can with plants you generally think you need to do from transplants. Uh, the next side of this is in Permaculture Magazine this month, my wife found it for me at some place. I'm going to have to ask her where she found it because uh, I'd like to uh, to know where I can get a hold of it in the future because uh, I've never seen it on a shelf around here because it comes out of the U.K. There's an article on Sepp Holzer's permaculture beds. He digs about a one and a half meter, so for us that don't know the metric system, well, that's about four to five feet deep trench. He fills that with wood until uh, it's about a foot to a foot above the surface layer, and then he builds a, a, a organic matter layer and then a humus layer on the very top, and the bed actually comes more like to a point at the top than into a straight up and down bed the way we conventionally build them. He does that because there's less soil compaction, but that tells you that his cover is extreme, and he's using a lot of humus organic matter between the wood and the, you know, the, the, the actual topsoil. They say topsoil and horse manure. I love the idea of throwing a whole bunch of horse manure on top of the wood. That's great. It's a huge source of nitrogen. The wood's going to be taking up nitrogen its first year, uh, so that's going to give it a lot of, of nitrogen to take up. And remember, it's not a sink. It's a trap. That nitrogen will be there and be drawn on for years and years and years to come. But do not just throw it down there, throw a foot of topsoil on it, plant your plants. Because what will happen is your plants will have almost no fertility to access in the, in the, in the topsoil layer. And then you'll email me and say, Jack, it didn't work. You, you're a jerk. And you, I built my beds wrong because you told me to, to go ahead and bury them a foot deep. And that's the problem. That's not the problem. You need to make sure you incorporate a great deal of fertility into that 12 inches right up, including to the surface of compost, composted horse manure, and any other things you can use to boost your fertility. And I'll tell you this, because you're doing hugel culture in its first year, and you are going to have a nitrogen trap built under there along with a moisture trap, it would be a really great idea that when you first plant that you use a good high-quality, high-nitrogen fertilizer uh, or uh, like blood and bone, for instance, at the surface layer to get those initial plants established. So that's how I would go about that process. In fact, it's pretty much exactly what I'm doing. And don't let my... My description of Sepp Holzer's six-foot-tall berms uh, dissuades you from doing a conventional bed. Lots of people have done that. That's what I'm doing. I was going to do my beds freestanding, and then I realized I have these things called dogs. And my dogs, by and large, in Florida, Florida, in Texas, had some level of respect for my garden beds because of the wood around them. I don't think they would respect mounds, so I'm going to go ahead and box them in more to contain or to, to keep the dogs out than to contain the soil in. So you don't need to do a box-style bed. You can just simply do a piled bed. And Sepp Holzer, who really knows what he was doing, would tell you you're going to get less soil compaction that way. So it's probably not a bad idea if it works for you. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Um, I just uh, wanted to know what you think about uh, the CERT program, the Community Emergency Response Team program. Uh, I don't think I've heard you mention it. I'm uh, in a fairly dense urban area without uh, a clear path to get out if something should happen quickly. So I decided to volunteer, take advantage of the training, and uh, try to be part of the solution rather than just someone standing in line for a handout. Um, 
figured it was better to be giving away the supplies than uh, needing them. Uh, so just uh, wanted to hear your thoughts on that and uh, if you think it's valuable or if you think that's uh, a liability. Uh, thanks for your time. Bye. Uh, CERT is something I is one of those things that's on my radar to do someday, and uh, I could probably give you a much better impression on it than uh, I can now. Actually, after having done it, I can't see any bad side or any downside or any risk to doing it. Uh, being someone that's able to respond in a disaster is not a bad thing. Um, I do want to tell you a little bit about some of the negative that that's come out of it. Um, Brian Black, one of my good friends over at ITS, he did CERT back in 2009, and he had some issues with it. And let me read you a little bit about part of his uh, his issues with it, things he didn't like about the program. And it was pretty much the triage and the lack of, of, uh, of effort to save certain people in the way that you're trained. I'll just read part of his article to you, and I'll link to the rest so you can get yourself. Uh, killers. The first step in cert triage is to look at each victim for, quote, the killers, unquote, which are airway obstruction, excessive bleeding, and signs of shock. After the triage, a more thorough but still quick-headed toe assessment is performed to look for bruising, swelling, severe pain, and disfigurement. The head-to-toe assessment can be done in place if the building is lightly damaged or done at the established triage areas. Moving back to the killers, my dilemma lies with airway obstruction. During triage, CERT teaches you to do triage fast, do the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people in the shortest amount of time. I'm driving that point in because the response given to me for many questions I, ha- I had about the training. In identifying, quote, the killers, an airway obstruction is to be handled by using a head-tilt-chin-lift method to open the airway and check for breathing. Uh, check for breathing, not a pulse. Those are entirely different uh, to CERT, and the pulse is ignored. If after a head tilt chin lift airway is established, it is taught to find a way to keep the victim's airway open. Uh, this can be done with a towel propping up the shoulders, thus dropping the head back and opening the airway, or having a green tag walking wounded hold the airway open. If a person is not breathing but potentially has a post, you are to tag them dead, and he has that in all capitals. Uh, This is my moral dilemma. How am I not supposed to want to save someone's life when I know good and damn well there's a possibility? So in the triage, you don't even check for a pulse, and that that bugs me as well. And here's his response on this. Uh, when I questioned our instructor regarding the dilemma, he responded first with the canned greatest good, etc., then elaborated with these responses. With CPR, you have to stay with the victim, breathing for them until EMS can arrive. What happens if you're in a natural disaster and EMS is unable to reach you for three days? Are you going to continue CPR for three days straight? And I'll let you read the rest of Brian's thoughts on this, and they're excellent as everything he writes is, but I'll put it to you this way. Bullshit. Right? If I find a guy laying there like that and I check for a pulse and I'm going to check for a pulse and Cirque and Dan will kiss my ass if they don't like it and the person has a pulse, uh, they don't seem to be breathing, I would certainly use uh, some, some, a few breaths to see if I can get the person breathing. I'm certainly not going to tag a person with a heartbeat dead. Uh, so there's some real issues I have there. Again, you can read Brian Black's assessment of it, but I'm not going to say too much more until I check uh, until, until I check it out and actually go through it myself. Um, but that bugs me. So that that's my biggest hang-up so far from the outside looking in. Anybody who's been through CERT training, if you'd like to comment on this, please check out our show notes today and do just that. Let's go ahead and take, I think, one more call today. Hey, Jack, this is Dan. Uh, first off, I love the show. It's great, and I've actually gotten a lot of my friends into the kind of 
well, prepping mindset just by directing them to your show. So uh, that's great, uh, trying to spread the word. Uh, my question was how to kind of find a, well, quote-unquote, bug-out location. I've already got, you know, land out in the middle of nowhere, but there's no community out there. And I'm trying to find a medium-sized town or something, four acres, whatever. I've looked at numerous land sites, but where can somebody find a place to actually go to find a community? Uh, is there any, I mean, I've looked on the uh, uh, recent link you posted, you know, I can find land, but how do we network to find a place to live? So uh, thanks again. I hope uh, to get an answer to my comment. Uh, if not, that's cool. You're going to have a great show. All right. Thank you, sir. Bye. First, I love the question because it's not, how do I get out in the middle of nowhere and make sure no one ever finds me, including the blood, the black helicopters when they fly from the air? Uh, it's how do I find a community where I can bug in if I'm bugging out or a place to live and a place that uh, I can make work for me and a place that if something goes wrong, I'm going to have other people I know I can rely on. The best way to have a community, if you can't find one, is to build one. So the, the first recommendation I have for you is to open your mind to the fact that anywhere there are people, there is potential to build a strong community. And one of the best ways I can think of to do that uh, and get a frame, frame reference on how you can do that is go back and listen, and I will link to it today in the show notes, to episode 581. And it, the title of that episode is Building Community with Marjorie Wildcraft. And Marjorie of Backyard Food Production uh, did a great job on that show talking about ways that she's built community around her by simply running simple events on subjects that people that would be uh, independent-minded would want to know about, things like growing your own food. Uh, and not actually saying, I'm looking for a, a prepper community or a survivalist community or whatever, but just simply setting up events. And I won't rehash the whole episode. It's great. It's over an hour long, hour and eight minutes to be exact. Go listen to that one today to get a better answer to this question if you didn't hear it originally. Uh, the next thing I will say is you have to decide what you want in a place to live and look for a place that has that and then worry about building community. But do do some research on your neighbors. There's usually in every community, every neighborhood, whether small or large, a turd. I, I, I don't understand the, the phenomenon, but uh, you could have a neighborhood of 50 houses, and there's one turd. You could have a neighborhood of 10 houses, and there's one turd. And everywhere I've always gone... There's a turd. So you, you can't write off a whole place because of one turd. And if I seem like I'm using the word excessively, it's because of the excessive nature of turds showing up in the general population. People that have big issues about something. Uh, but what you're looking for is a neighborhood where the majority of people will get along with the way that you want to live. So if you, if you tour an area that you consider buying a house or buying land in, look for how people keep their homes. And if it looks like a way you would keep your home, you're probably going to be fine. If it looks like a way that you don't don't want to keep your home and you don't like other people doing it, you're going to become a turd if you move there, so don't go there. Uh, if, if everybody's yard looks really, really manicured uh, and place looks really, really manicured and you don't want to live that way, don't move in because even though you're not the turd, they're going to see you as the turd, right? So it's more about where you want to live. So, I mean, you've talked about looking at land and all. I would just keep looking, and when you find the right place, you'll know it. If you really want the potential for community, you're probably looking at the types of neighborhoods where people are generally sitting on about an acre to two acres of land. Uh, those types of places, generally neighbors know each other, nobody feels crowded, but yet people are close enough together to see each other every day. Uh, we lived in a place in Northampton, uh, Northampton, Pennsylvania, that was like that. We lived in a, a subdivision that was probably... 
I'd say there were 15, 20 houses within our little subdivision. And there was a turd. There absolutely was a couple old people. They were collective turds. And I've told the story about why they were turds in the past. So I won't do it again. But everybody else in that, in that neighborhood pretty much got along. People walked around. People talked to each other. That's probably the kind of community that you're looking for based on what you're saying. Nothing wrong with having some more land. But if it's located, like if you're the guy with the seven acres and everybody else around you has two or three or an acre, and there's that kind of, like if you, if you go outside of your home and you can see five or six houses, Uh, but yet you don't feel like anybody's too close to you, that's probably the kind of place that you're looking for. That's that's the best I can do, man. Sometimes you guys ask questions, and I feel like, dude, I'm not Yoda. I'm not. You know, I can't I can't psychically interface with you and determine exactly what's going to make you happy. But uh, I would focus first on, you know, sit down with your spouse and make a list. What do you want and what do you not want? And then use that criteria to land hunt, house hunt, the way anybody else would. And then form community based on what you find attractive. And if you look for a community based on what you want most in it, and, and leave, you got to leave the whole I want a community part out. The community is there. Uh, but if you find the type of place that fits what you're looking for, odds are you're going to have like-minded people there. And then take the information that Marjorie gave in that wonderful episode. Again, for people that just want to look it up, uh, go to the site, type in 581 and hit search, and you'll find it like lightning fast. Uh, but I will link to it from today's show notes. And listen to some just fabulous ways that she was able to link up with a lot of people. And I'm telling you, she's way remote. Uh, I've been to her place. It is way the hell in the middle of nowhere, but there's still people. And there's still a pretty tight-knit community. So if she can do it there, you go look small-town rural, you can probably definitely pull that off. I also did another episode recently you might want to check out, comparing areas to live, not based on regions or states or anything like that, but based on rural, you know, true rural versus small-town versus urban. That was episode 716 entitled, Where Are You Going to Live That Build That Better Life? And the areas I covered were urban, suburban, small town, true rural, and remote. And uh, I think that episode, uh, considering your call came in before it, if you haven't listened to it already, would be a great one for you to listen to. And I covered the good and bad about each area in a very open-minded way, including the areas that don't really uh, don't really appeal to me, like urban. I don't want to live there, but there's some goodness to it. So I talked about that. So listen to that. Listen to Marjorie's episode, and I think you'll find that you can build community wherever you actually desire to build community. And on that, on that note, that was a great final uh, call. I appreciate everybody that calls. Remember, if you want to be on a show like this, you can dial 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK, and I'll try to get you on the air. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.